Let me say good morning and happy Sabbath to everyone. It's a privilege to be here with you all. And I trust that God is going to again reveal his faithfulness to us as he helps us understand a little bit better this topic that we have called our greatest need. Our greatest need. We're going to be talking about revival and reformation. We know that it was under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit that God made known to his servant, the prophet of these last days, for the remnant people, that a revival of true godliness is the greatest and most urgent of all of our needs. And we are told that to seek this should be our first work. The truth of the matter is, is that while it is true that revival and reformation is the greatest and most urgent of all of our needs and to seek this should be our first work, while this is true, we must also understand that there is a need for a practical understanding of this term. You know, we have a tendency to use a lot of terms and cliches in our movement, but many a times we have not given it due consideration. How do I take this theoretical term and make it practical? And so you'll find that many of us, we are very high on theory, but we're very low on practicality. What the world needs to see, what the city of Loma Linda needs to see, is they need to see Christians in their heart. And they need to see that beyond the Sabbath day. And they need to see that beyond religious services. We must be the same person that we are on God's Sabbath day that we are when we are in a room by ourselves where no one is looking. And this is the great frustration that heaven is having with God's people right now. There are many of us who are giving a very high profession, but when we are by ourselves and when we are in the secret recesses of life, we find ourselves becoming completely different people. God says that he needs to change that. And therefore, he recognizes that the way that this is to be done is there must be a revival and there must be a reformation. And what we're going to do is make it practical. I come from Atlanta, Georgia. That is where I live. Uh, not specifically Atlanta, but nevertheless, I'm in that area. And I am under what is known as the Georgia Cumberland Conference. And, you know, one of our conference officials came to my church and they asked the question, you know, what do we need to see take place in our churches to make them better? So as they were doing this meeting and having this meeting with us, I got to a point I raised my hand and I asked them, I said, listen, I said, do you believe that a revival and reformation is the greatest and most urgent of our needs right now? And they said, yes, we agree. I said, so you're in agreement with inspiration. You're in agreement with uh, the president of our, gener of our conferences, uh, Elder Ted Wilson. I said, you're in agreement. Yes. I said, all right, here's my next question. How do you take that term, revival and reformation, how do you take these words and how, what is your plan on educating the people in our various churches to know how to make that concept practical? His answer was, we have not considered that. And the reason I say this is because I'm amazed that we can say we believe in revival and reformation, but we still have rock and roll churches. 
I'm amazed that we can say that we believe in revival and reformation, but we still have schools where there are apostates that are being paid by God's money and they are teaching the people evolution. When individuals begin to say that they believe in revival and reformation, but we still have ministers who will go around and have the audacity to say that 1844 was some conjured up idea to spare us embarrassment to the Christian world. When we begin to say things like that, when we still go around and we take our youth and we get them involved in all sorts of ridiculous events that God has made clear in his word are not designed to prepare a people for the coming of the Lord. That tells me that we need to understand something more about this idea called revival and reformation. And that's why, by the grace of God, we dare to touch on such a wide and broad topic in just a few sessions on a Sabbath day. So I'm going to let you know right now, we're not going to be able to touch it all. We're not going to, there's no way you could touch it all in just one meeting or one weekend. This is something that must progress on and on and on until we finally get it. But by the grace of God, brothers and sisters, I'm praying that if we could at least get some of these principles together in our hearts, the Lord can help us to enter into an experience that when Jesus comes, we can be counted amongst those who are saved. Brothers and sisters, I stand before you with no time to play games. I must tell you the truth because Jesus promised that the truth is the only thing that makes people free. It's the only thing. Lies do not make people free. Only the truth. Only the truth as it is in Jesus Christ. And so today we're going to talk about revival made practical in this session. In the afternoon, we're going to talk about reformation. Brothers and sisters, let me tell you something. Don't miss these meetings. In the afternoon at 4 o'clock, we're going to come back and we're going to talk about reformation made practical. And I'm going to show you some startling things about reformation. And then our final session is, what do we do from here? What do we do from here? And so as we prepare our hearts to hear the Lord speak to our hearts, I'm going to invite as much of you as are able that you would please kneel with me as we go before God in prayer and prepare our hearts to hear what the Lord has to say to all of us. Our Father in heaven, we thank you, Lord, for this, your holy Sabbath day of rest. Father, we praise you and thank you that you love us enough to tell us the truth. Sometimes, Lord, truth hurts because our lives have been so comfortable in error. And it disrupts our lifestyle. It disrupts our thinking patterns. It disrupts even our ideologies and our concepts of what constitutes life. But we accept the words of Jesus that we shall know the truth and the truth will make us free. And Father, we need freedom. Lord, there are many of us who are under a most gross deception. We believe we're free now. But you said, whosoever committed sin is the slave of sin. And Lord, we need freedom. Not just freedom financially, not just freedom in all the various points of life, but we need freedom and victory over sin. And there's only one who can do that. And that is the one who is the truth. And that's none other than Jesus. Father, it's our desire today that as we behold your words of truth, 
that by beholding we would all become changed into that precious image of Jesus. And Lord, I believe with all of my heart, you are convincing me more and more that if Christ is lifted up, all men will be drawn unto him. I commit myself into your hands. Take my feeble mind and my feeble words and my feeble body. And please perform a miracle today that you will allow me to be a vessel that heaven can speak through. And Lord, I praise you and thank you because though this may seem impossible with man, I'm grateful that all things are possible with God. Speak to me and speak through me that you may touch and reach the hearts of thy people. Is our prayer that we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. I want you to turn your Bibles to the book of Revelation chapter 3. Revelation chapter 3. It is in Revelation, the third chapter, that as God speaks not only to the seventh church, but he's also speaking to the last church, that God brings across to yours and my mind a reality of the condition of his people. The very people who were to make the world aware of the hour of judgment, the very people who were to give the wonderful herald of the first, second, and third angel's message, the very people who were supposed to finish the work are the very people that God found were in such a condition that God had to give them counsel. It says in Revelation 3 and verse 14, we know these texts very well. It says, And unto the angel of the church of the Laodiceans write, These things saith the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. I know thy works, that thou art neither cold nor hot, I would thou were cold or hot, and so then because thou art lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will spew thee out of my mouth. I never thought that God's people could get him to a point to make him want to vomit. And that's a solemn thought to think that God would look upon those whom he died for, the ones that he loves with an everlasting love, but at the same time as a result of something that took place, and I'm going to show you what that something is, as a result of something that took place, it got to a point that God's people... To a very large degree, brothers and sisters, yea, I would dare to say a majority, that those who profess to love him, God is now speaking to them and saying that what I'm seeing taking place in your hearts and in your lives is to the point that it actually makes me have a disruption in my belly to the point that I want to vomit. Brothers and sisters, there is no reason under the sun that God's children should have put him in a position to ever have this written under inspiration. But it's a reason that we must investigate because I believe, as all medical missionaries understand, that when you treat any disease, when you treat any problem, you know Laodicea is a disease. Laodicea is a spiritual disease. It's the worst of all cancers. And this spiritual disease, I'm thankful that while God shows us it's a reality, he also makes it clear to yours and my mind that there is a remedy. But brothers and sisters, in order to embrace that remedy, we must first ascertain the cause. That's what medical missionaries are taught. We first learned that in Proverbs 26 too. It says, the curse causeless shall not come. A curse never comes without a cause. And therefore, Job 29, 16 tells us that the cause which I knew not, I searched it out. That's what we're going to do today. We have to search out the cause. Don't treat the symptoms. Search out the cause. 
What would put us in a place where God would actually look at his own people, the apple of his eye, and get to a point to say that their behavior makes me want to vomit? Let us notice. It says in verse 17, because thou sayest, I am rich and increase with goods and have need of nothing and knowest not that thou art wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. The reason why God became so sick of what he was seeing in the lives of his own people was because they got to a point that they thought that they were all right when in truth they were all wrong. Now, something put them in this condition, and the Bible shows us what it was. It's right there in the next few verses. It says in verse 20, it says, Behold, I stand at the door and do what? Now, brothers and sisters, if Jesus is standing at the door knocking, look at this. He says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man hear my voice and what? Opens the door, I will do what? Come in to him and will sup with him and he with me. Brothers and sisters, in order for verse 20 to be true, what that testifies is that Jesus is on the outside of our hearts. And as a result of Christ being on the outside of our hearts, that means that he's not our focus. And if Jesus is not our focus, then who is? Us ourselves. This is the issue of Laodicea. It's a disease that pushes out Christ and causes a tremendous focus on self. And as a result of a focus on self, we begin to say, I'm rich. We start to look at our bank accounts. We start to look at the degrees behind our names. We start to look at all the sorts of achievements that we have made in life. We begin doing exactly what the Bible tells us not to do. You know one of the biggest reasons why we're so caught up in ourselves? Go to the book of 2 Corinthians chapter 10. Notice, the Bible tells us exactly why, one of the great reasons why we're so incredibly caught up on ourselves. And we find that many of us suffer with this problem, but God says, I have a solution. Notice what the Bible says in 2 Corinthians chapter 10. In 2 Corinthians, the 10th chapter, the Bible lifts up a very powerful principle that you and I would do well to consider, and by the grace of God, may we never practice it ever again. What is one of the reasons why we find ourselves so often looking at ourselves, thinking of ourselves, consumed with ourselves, even to the point that we will brag on ourselves? We will begin to exalt our opinions, our thoughts, our ideas, our concepts, our ideologies. Where does this come from? Here's one great reason why. 2 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 12. Notice what the Bible says in 2 Corinthians 10 and verse 12. It says, for we dare not make ourselves of the number or compare ourselves with some that commend themselves. Watch this. But they measuring themselves by themselves and comparing themselves among themselves are wise. The Bible says they are not wise. One of the great reasons why many of us think that we're better off than we really are is because we're busy comparing ourselves to the next man and the next woman. Many a times we look at this group over here and we say, well, we're doing better than them. Sometimes we look at individuals and we say, well, I'm doing better than them. Well, I'm not as bad as they are. Well, actually, I have a little more truth than they have. Brothers and sisters, let me tell you a solemn truth, and I say it only because inspiration said it first. Some of the greatest Christians in this world have yet to join the Seventh-day Adventist church. There's a reason God says, come out of her, my people. 
God has a lot of his people that are in all these other churches that constitute Babylon. They are living more up to the light of what they know to be truth than many of us are. How many of us know that to violate the laws of health is sin? We know that. We've read it over and over again. But here's the next question. How many of us are faithfully following the laws of health? You get what I'm saying? We know so much, brothers and sisters. We are rich. But the problem is, is we think that because of the intellectual understanding of truth, that that constitutes righteousness. Now, when you read Desire of Ages, page 309, you will find that that was the same exact mistake the Pharisees made. It says in Desire of Ages, page 309, it says the great mistake of the Pharisees is that they thought that an intellectual assent to truth constituted righteousness. Brothers and sisters, we find ourselves often falling into this same trap because we have higher light, because we have higher knowledge, because we have broader and deeper information than any of the other churches on planet Earth. We begin to gloat on that fact, but we forget that God wanted us to live that truth. What is the point of knowing truth if we won't live it, brothers and sisters? This is what Jesus is bringing out. This is what kicked him out of our hearts. Because Jesus and sin cannot dwell together. And James 4, 17 says to him that knows to do good and doeth it not. To him it is sin. Christ cannot dwell where sin is. Christ has to get to a point to say either sin goes or I go. And this is why in Matthew 24, notice what Jesus said was a last day event. Notice what the Bible says in Matthew 24. In Matthew, the 24th chapter, notice what Christ, he gave all sorts of signs. And we love to focus on a lot of things, but brothers and sisters, we would do well to talk more about this one. In Matthew, the 24th chapter, the Bible tells us another last day event. And this last day event has nothing to do with Rome. This last day event doesn't even have to deal with the apostasy in the church per se. But I want you to see a last day event, a last day harbinger that Christ made known to yours and my heart that we were supposed to consider this the same way we consider everything else. The Bible says in Matthew, the 24th chapter, if you're there, say amen. amen. The Bible says in Matthew 24 right there and verse 12, the Bible says, and because iniquity shall what? Abound. What's going to happen? It says the love of many are going to wax cold. Because iniquity grows, abounds, and keeps progressing, it says the love that was once in God's people are going to wax cold. You see, when you look at a picture like this, you see a man with a Bible in his hand. And you see a man behind him begging, please give me the word. This man is walking with a religious carelessness and indifference upon his countenance. Brothers and sisters, do you know how often we can find ourselves like this man? When you're at gas stations, you think there aren't people that's wanting to know what is truth. When you're in the grocery stores, you think there aren't people there that's saying what is truth. When you go to your jobs and your places of business, do you think there's not even seven-day Adventists that are at the brink of turning away from God's truth because of all the apostasy that's been running in this church? You think that there are not even seventh-day Adventists that are not saying, what is truth? 
people are begging. This is why we're taught in Steps to Christ, page 70, that every time we have devotion, we are to complete our devotion in the morning by saying, Lord, take me as holy thine. I lay all my plans at thy feet. Use me in your service today and let all my works be wrought in thee. You can set whatever plans you want for the day, but you and I are supposed to have such an indissoluble connect with heaven that at any time, if the Spirit of God downloads a thought in our minds that says there's somebody hungering for truth, go minister to them. We'll be prepared to give them meat in due season. You see, when Matthew 24 says, and because iniquity shall abound, it says the love of many shall wax cold. I challenge any of you, look it up in the Greek. You know what that word love comes up as? That word love, it actually pops up as agape. You know about agape love, don't you? We love to talk about agape love, especially when we read 1 Corinthians, the 13th chapter. We love to talk about agape love. Oh, that godly love, right? That's what we talk about. But here it is that the Bible says that is that godly love that individuals had. It'll disappear. It'll actually go away. You know, I think about Jesus. When Jesus was talking about his disciples, you will find that Christ said something about those whom he recognizes as his disciples. Go to John chapter 8 with me. We're going to study this morning. John, the 8th chapter. In John, the 8th chapter, you find that Jesus was teaching a principle that was very, very powerful. We find it in John 8, and it's right there in verse 31. John 8, verse 31. Look at what the Bible says. The Bible says, Then said Jesus to those Jews which believed on him. He's talking to believers. He says, If you do what? So notice that key word. He says, If you continue in my word, what is the next word? Then. So that means, if you don't do this, you are not whatever comes after then. Are you following? That then is a very key point of this sentence. If you continue in my word, then are you my disciples indeed. Now, brothers and sisters, I want to be a disciple of Jesus. How about you? Some of us right now, we profess ourselves to be disciples of Jesus. But brothers and sisters, we must understand that if the only testimony you have is about when you used to be on fire, that doesn't sound like you're having a continued experience. If all you and I can say is when I used to have this love for Jesus. You know how many times I've had people come to me and they say, Brother Lemon, I used to be like you. And some of them have the nerve to try to counsel me. Brother Lemon, I, I used to be on fire like you, but after a while I've learned that I had to understand some things better. And you know what many times I say? Sometimes by word and sometimes by mind, I say, I rebuke you in the name of Jesus. Get thee behind me, Satan. I'm dead serious because sometimes you'll find people will try to steal away or burn out your fire. The Bible says if you continue in my word, that means that you have to have a present experience in the truth. It is not enough. Sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. Christ says if you continue in my word, it is not just to preach present truth. You're supposed to have a present experience in the truth. Christ says, when we continue in the word, then are ye my disciples indeed. Brothers and sisters, you can't live off of yesterday's blessings. You can't live off of yesterday's fire. 
you got to plead with God and say, Lord, how can I once again have the fire of your love kindled within my heart? And God can do it. God can do it. If there's anybody in this room that says, you know what, I'm going to be honest with you, preacher. My fire has gone out. My fire is dying. You know one of the things that will cause fire to die, right? A lack of oxygen. A lack of oxygen. That'll make a fire go out real quick. And there's something that God calls the breath of the soul. And what is that breath of the soul? All right, that means that we now can move on. Now watch this. We recognize, brothers and sisters, that many of us, we are running through trials. We're running through tribulations. We see that God is now looking upon his very own people that he's called to finish the work. And at the same time, we find ourselves in this place in our walk with God where the fire is going out. Perhaps the fire has died. This is how that love of God began to wax cold because when the fire of God's love dies, the fire of hell's lies kindle. And it begins to burn within us. And before you know it, iniquity begins to abound in our lives. And that love of God begins to wax cold. We become complacent, careless, indifferent. Jesus says, I need to change that in you. Because Jesus says, I can't save you like that. And this is a fire, brothers and sisters, that you can't kindle. Anytime you study the sanctuary, you will know that anytime an offering was consumed, the fire came from top down. Only God can create that fire. Why do you think Hebrews 12, 29 says that God is a consuming fire? This is a fire you can't create no matter how hard you try. You can't make yourself love God. Romans chapter 5 tells us, right there in verse 5, it says that the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Ghost. That's the only way you can get it. But is there a part that we are to play? Let us notice. A revival of true godliness among us is the greatest and most urgent of all our needs. To seek this should be our what? First word, Christian service, page 41. So we find that we need a revival. It makes sense now, doesn't it? We need a revival. I was in a country one time and I was talking with a very high level conference official. They invited me to come sit down with them because they wanted to see a revival and reformation take place amongst their people. And when I sat down with them, the first thing I asked them, I said, do you believe we need a revival and reformation? Do you believe that? Or are you bringing me here to play games with your people? Do you believe that we need a revival and reformation? And he and his staff said, oh, yes, we believe that. I said, very good. That means you do understand our churches are dead. And all of a sudden, it got as quiet as you got. And they all, they're all looking at me like I got two heads and 14 eyes. And they're looking at me, and they're just like, what do you mean our churches are dead? I said, listen to me. And I'm in Loma Linda. I know there's a lot of medical professionals here. Correct me if I'm wrong. The only patient that needs to be revived is one who stopped breathing. Is that right, medical professionals? The only patients who need to be revived are the ones whose breathing is really slowing down to the point of death or they absolutely stop breathing. Those are the ones you need to revive. And so that's exactly what I told them. I said, by virtue of understanding physiology, I said, you need to understand that the only people that need to be revived are people that stop breathing. And when a person stops breathing, they don't need regular treatment. They need emergency treatment. So once you understand that the churches are dead, they don't need regular treatment. They need emergency treatment. Sometimes the emergency treatment might even involve a shock factor. Is that right? 
No wonder Desire of Ages, page 103, says that when John would give his message, it says that he gave a message that would startle the people, shock them. Startle them to their lethargy, that they can see themselves for who they are and realize I'm not as all right as I thought I was, even though I got a million dollars in my bank account. That's right, you're still as hell bound without Jesus. You mean to tell me even though I have big houses, cars, whatever, yes, you're hell bound without Jesus. You mean to tell me that even though I hold ABC position, have all these letters behind my name as a result of degrees, yes, without Jesus, you're hell bound. My friend, you need Jesus. And you don't need a profession of him. You need him in your heart. You need to let him live out his life within you. For if you do that not, you are just as hellbound as the crab-eating, smoking person and any other type of sinner that you can think in the world. You're just as hellbound as they are. You'll probably just burn for less time. What does that matter? I mean, I'm, I'm serious. I'm reasoning with you. Are you following me, saints? So therefore, we need Jesus in the heart. It's heart work with Christ. It must be heart work with us. And therefore, we understood that revival and reformation, a revival of true godliness, which means there's false godliness. It cannot be a call for a revival of true godliness unless there is false godliness. Are you following? We'll talk about that false godliness. Therefore, now let's take a look. It says the time has come for a what kind of reformation? It says for a thorough reformation to take place. When this reformation begins, the spirit of prayer will actuate every believer and will banish from the church the spirit of discord and strife. Brothers and sisters, do you know how often we find ourselves striving against one another? The very fact that there's all this drama, this is why we know God has to shake up this church. I have learned to rejoice. The more that I hear about all these different groups and everybody's coming together, everybody has their own thing. You got Lunar Sabbath, you got feast days. You got 2520, you got offshoot. You have those who are nominal in the church. You have people denying the sanctuary truth. You have people saying our diet has nothing to do with our salvation. You have people that are practicing all sorts of reforms. We got all these groups and you can take your pick which one you want to join. But I've learned like Paul did in Philippians 1 where he says some preach for strife, some preach for envy, some preach for this and preach for that. But Paul says, I actually rejoice. Because he says, I rejoice in all of this. Why? Because now people are studying. I have learned to thank God for all these different groups now. Not so much because I believe in their errors. No, brothers and sisters. But you know what it's doing? I've learned that there is a ministry in heresies. Because it has a tremendous way of making a polarization in God's church of who are the ones that really love Jesus and who are the ones that's really going to study to show themselves approved and who are the ones that's going to seek with all their hearts to know what thus saith the Lord. So all these agitations, I'm finding out God is still accomplishing his goal. Now, I didn't learn that on my own. I read that in volume five of the Testimonies to the Church, page 707. When you read volume 5 of the Testimony to the Church, page 707, under the chapter Mysteries of the Bible, right there, it says that there are many who profess to have a knowledge of present truth who really don't know what they believe. It says they do not understand the evidences of their faith. And it says that when the time comes that they have to stand single and alone, they will be surprised at how confused are their ideas of what they thought constituted truth. She says 
God will arouse his people. And it says, and if nothing else works, heresies will come in. God did not ordain heresies to come in, but he allowed them to come in. He allowed it to come in because God is going to allow a situation to take place that's going to press everybody against the wall, and you're going to have to stop being lazy, and you're going to have to get into your Bible, and you're going to have to tax your mind, and you're going to have to plead in prayer and say, Father, what is truth? And those who hunger for it shall find it. Brothers and sisters, it starts with the spirit of prayer. You're not just praying, oh, Lord, give me a car. You're not just praying, Lord, give me a husband or a wife. Brothers and sisters, you're pleading and praying with God to say, Lord, I see my condition. I see that I have no right to point fingers here, there, and everywhere. I see, Lord, that if there's any fingers that need to be pointed, it needs to be pointed at me because I am a mess. I'm in trouble. I am separated from you, and without you, I can do nothing. Lord, help me. The spirit of prayer. And when the spirit of prayer comes, it will remove that discord and strife. Go to the book of Proverbs chapter 6. Notice what Proverbs 6 says. In Proverbs, the sixth chapter, there's too much more of this than that. And what we have to do is get balanced. Proverbs, the sixth chapter, God actually says something that affects him to the point that I want you to see how he spells it out. In Proverbs, the sixth chapter and the 16th verse. The Bible says in Proverbs 6 and verse 16, it says, these six things doth the Lord hate. Yea, seven are an abomination unto him. A proud look, a lying tongue, and hands that shed innocent blood. And heart that devises wicked imaginations. Feet that be swift in running to mischief. A false witness that speaketh lies. And what's that last one? He that soweth discord amongst the brethren. God says, I hate it when people do that. God says, I hate it. When people sow the seeds of discord amongst the brethren. God says prayer is one of the key things that'll get rid of that. But when we're spending time in prayer, we're agonizing with God. You remember Luke chapter 22 and verse 44, where it says that when Jesus was in the garden of Gethsemane, that he's praying with God. And as the pressure had crushing weight on him, it got to a point that it says that, and being in agony, he prayed more earnestly. Do you know what it is to agonize with God? Do you know what it is to go before God and not talk about everybody else and how messed up everybody else is, but to say, Lord, look at me. I'm a mess. I'm wretched. I'm miserable. I'm poor. I'm blind. I'm naked. These are the things that God says he wants to reveal unto you and I. But again, the problem, the reason why many of us are not making those kind of prayers is because we haven't seen ourselves in that condition. That's why we say, oh, Lord, help those poor people over in ABC country. Oh, Lord, help these people over here. Help these deceived people. Lord, help everybody. Instead of saying, Lord, help me. Lord, help me. I'm a mess. I'm an absolute bona fide mess. And without you, I can't do anything right. But I'm going to show you one of the things that hinders us from that. Let's press on. What is revival and reformation? Let's define these terms so we can know how to make it more practical in our life. We are told a revival and a reformation must take place under the ministration of who? The Holy Spirit. Amen. So therefore, we need the Spirit of God that's going to help open our eyes and give us eyes salve that we can see ourselves in our true condition. You follow that? 
That can only happen under the Spirit of God. So therefore, every day, what are you asking for? You're asking for the outpouring of the Holy Spirit that he may do what? Give you power to witness to somebody? Not just that. What are you, what's your key prayer? Lord, give me your spirit that I may what? See myself. This is why when Jesus presented the natural remedy to this sinful condition called Laodicea, notice what he said. Go back to Revelation 3. We're taking it step by step. Revelation 3. Go back there. In Revelation, the third chapter, Jesus actually showed us step by step how to do this. He gave us a natural remedy, but I want you to see what it was. Look at it. In Revelation chapter 3, remember, one of the issues of the brethren is that they're blind. Can't see. Can't see. Blind. I can't see my true condition. Now, look at what it says. It says in verse 18, I counsel thee to buy of me gold tried in the fire and white raiment that thou mayest be clothed and that the shame of thy nakedness do not appear and anoint thine eyes with eye salve that what? Thou mayest see. What do you think Christ wants us to see? Our true condition. I can't see my true condition by myself. I need eye salve. Now, the reason why we know that the Spirit of God plays a role in this is go to the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 12. In 1 Corinthians chapter 12, let the Bible speak. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, notice. We know that the Spirit of God has to play a role in this because the only way an individual will see their need for Jesus and go to him for salvation, it must be as a result of the work of the Holy Spirit. Notice what the Bible says in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. In 1 Corinthians, the 12th chapter, Right there, starting at verse 1. The Bible says in 1 Corinthians 12 and verse 1, it says, Now concerning spiritual gifts, brethren, I would not have you ignorant. Ye know that ye were Gentiles, carried away unto these dumb idols, even as ye were led. Wherefore I give you to understand, watch this, that no man speaking by what? The Spirit of God calleth Jesus a curse, and that no man can say that Jesus is Lord, but how? By the Holy Ghost. So the only way we can even recognize Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior is because of the ministration of the Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit plays a tremendous role in giving me eye salve, discernment, that I can see my true condition and then see my need for salvation. You follow that? All right, now let's go on. Revival signifies a renewal of spiritual life, a quickening of the powers of mind and heart, a resurrection from the spiritual death. Remember we said that we were talking about revival, and I told you that a revival obviously signifies that something's dead. Now you see where I got it from. So inspiration shows us that a revival is necessary as a result of spiritual death. Now the question is, what does spiritual death look like? What does spiritual death even look like? You ever thought about that? How does the Bible define someone who's spiritually dead? We know what literally dead means. That, that's too clear. We've all, of course, had family, relatives, friends who've gone through these experiences. So we know about the literal death. But what does spiritual death look like? Go to the book of Ephesians chapter 2. In Ephesians chapter 2, we find out exactly what spiritual death looks like. So therefore, we understand what revival's focus is all about. This is why, brothers and sisters, when we talk about revival and reformation, if you don't talk about this, you're not preaching revival and reformation. People coming up with all these cool ideas, cliches, building up all sorts of uh, ministries and everything else on this idea about revival and reformation, and we're not even dealing with the real issues. 
Revival, brothers and sisters, is necessary because the people are going through a spiritual death and they need to be resurrected from that. So therefore, wouldn't it not make sense to understand biblically what is a spiritual death? So therefore, look at what the Bible says in Ephesians 2. In Ephesians chapter 2, right there in verse 1, the Bible says, And you hath he what? Quicken. Now hold it. Stop right there. You hath he done what? Quicken. What is a revival? A revival signifies a renewal of spiritual life, a quickening of the powers of mind and heart. So do you see a match there? Now notice, let's finish out the verse. It says, And you hath he quickened who were dead in what? trespasses and sins. So according to the Bible, what does spiritual death look like? When individuals are living in sin. If you and I are living in trespasses and sin, then God is saying that you are going through a spiritual death and therefore you must be quickened, made alive. So the goal of revival is to bring people into a harmony with Jesus so that they will not be spiritually dead. In other words, the goal of revival of true godliness is so that ultimately the people may have victory over sin. So if you're teaching revival, but you're not teaching victory over sin, I don't know what your message is, but it didn't come from heaven. God is not just trying to make us nicer people. It is not nicer people that's going to end up in heaven. Anyone who has victory over sin as a result of the indwelling of God's spirit, make no mistake about it, they'll be nice like Jesus was. But being nice is simply a fruit but it's not the end result. Revival is designed to quicken the individual to bring them out of a spiritual death, brothers and sisters. Are you following that so far? All right. Let's go on. Revival signifies a renewal of spiritual life. It also says a quickening of the powers of mind and heart, a resurrection from the spiritual death. Let's go on now. Notice, a reformation signifies a reorganization. If you believe in revival and reformation, and if your life, your home, your church, your school, whatever it may be, is still doing everything business as usual, you are not experiencing revival and reformation. Anybody who is experiencing a revival and reformation, what's going to happen? A reorganization is going to take place. A change in ideas and theories is going to take place. Habits will begin to change. Practices will begin to change. Anybody who firmly believes in revival and reformation, it means that there's not just a change in your brain. It's going to ultimately show in your lifestyle. All sorts of things are going to change. You're going to literally, in your personal life, in your home, in your church, in the school, in whatever the place may be, anybody who professes to do the work of the gospel in these very last moments of earth's history, anybody who's professing that, this is the end result. And by the way, anybody who is truly revived is always reforming. In other words, I've come from an old church where we used to always say, oh, we're revived, the Lord revived us today. But we go right back to smoking, drinking, cussing, swearing, fornicating, and everything else, just like everybody else in the world. That was a false revival. Anytime we say, oh, I'm being revived, but our dress is the same, our diet is the same. Our attitude is the same. The way we spend our money is still the same. 
our ideas and our practices, if it's all still the same, you have yet to experience true revival. Because true revival always, hear me good, true revival always leads to true reformation. So you're doing, a, you're doing some serious heart searching this morning, amen? You want to ask yourself, some of us, we, you know, some of us, we said that we've gone to people, we had a good worship service, sometimes we even cry. Now, brothers and sisters, I'm not here to make fun of tears. God marks tears. God marks tears. But I'm sorry, brothers and sisters, we are not to think that emotional stimulus constitutes revival. Please hear me good. We are not to think that emotional stimulus constitutes revival. Sometimes we get so much into an emotional moment because we're amazed at the goodness of God. And sometimes it calls us to shed tears. But brothers and sisters, God's desire is to take that experience and to make it a daily living principle. In other words, the emotion starts it, but it's a stimulus to live out a daily living principle. Did you notice I said principle and not emotion? This is why many of us keep falling back into sin. We live by emotion. One day I feel holy, so I'm going to do everything holy. But then the day we feel sinful, all right, I'm going to go ahead and do things sinful. You can't live like that, brothers and sisters. That's not the way of the Christian. That wasn't the life of Jesus. Jesus was a man who lived by principle. If Jesus gave in to his feelings, none of us would be here today. Jesus' feelings in Matthew 26, he said, Father, I don't want to go to this cross. That's what his feelings were crying out. But because Jesus from childhood up learned to live by principle, his principle overpowered his feelings and he said, nevertheless, not my will, but thy will be done. Always remember, Jesus did not like the cross. There was nothing lovely about the cross. The Bible lets us know that he endured the cross and despised the shame that came with it, but it was the joy that was set before him that motivated him to do it. Sometimes you're going to be called to do things or to give up things for Jesus, and in your heart, you're going to say, Lord, I don't want to do that. God says, I of all people understand. But you must learn to create that language in your mouth right now. Not my will, but thy will be done. And the more that you do that and the more you learn to live by principle, you will start finding yourself having daily victory. And actions repeated form habits. And habits forms character. And by the character, your destiny for time and eternity is decided. Christ Object Lessons 356. Actions repeated form habits. Habits form character, and by the character, our destiny for time and eternity is decided. Christ Object Lessons 3, 5, 6. So therefore, we look at this example here, and now we see that reformation signifies a reorganization, a change in ideas and theories, habits and practices. Reformation will not bring forth the good fruit of righteousness unless it is connected with the revival of the Spirit. Revival and reformation are to do their appointed work, and in doing this work, they must blend. Christian Service 42. Now watch this. Which one happens first, reformation or revival? So according to the quotation, revival takes place first, then proper reformation follows. 
What typically happens in Adventism is that many a times we reform before we're even revived. And this is why a woman can change her dress today and she dresses like a saint. But then after a while, because she's longing at the garments of Babylon, then lo and behold, because there's no real revival in the heart, next thing you know, they eventually go back to dressing. In fact, many times they don't go back to dressing the same way. They usually go back and dress worse. The reason that happens is because they were trying to reform without revival. There was no love for Jesus. There was no commitment. All they heard was some principles on dress reform. They said, all right, well, let me go ahead and do it. But as a result of trial, tribulation, challenges, next thing you know, they say, hey, this is too hard. And then they go back to the old ways. And they end up worse than they were before. Same thing with diets. Person changes their diet. Oh man, I need to change my diet. I need to start eating right. I watch forks over knives. Let me tell you something. We had forks over knives over 100 years ago. It was called councils on diets and foods. And all that forks over knives is doing is teaching sick sinners how to become healthy sinners. You got to start thinking, brothers and sisters. Listen to me. All that Forks Over Knives is doing is teaching people who are already living in sin, separated from Jesus, how to avoid heart attacks, high cholesterol, diabetes, and high blood pressure, and so on, and how when they were at the brink of death, how they can go ahead and not be at the brink of death anymore so they can become healthy, vibrant, strong sinners. I see not one gospel sentence in that whole DVD. So therefore, the last thing you want to do is simply show six sinners how to become healthy sinners. What you want to do is show six sinners how to become healthy saints. That's why we have a treasure called the gospel of health. That's a treasure God has given us. Because we deal with the whole man. All forks over knives does is it just deals with, you know, your, 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 your spleen and your colon and your arteries and your organs and so on. But it doesn't minister to the mind. It doesn't minister to the heart needs. It doesn't minister to the crisis that people face day by day, but the gospel of health does. Health reform does. I pray none of you call yourselves vegans. Vegans go around, vegans don't like to wear leather. Some of you got on leather shoes and leather belts and all that stuff. The, the vegans would call you an apostate. <laughs> Vegans follow all this thing with astrology and all this other stuff. You don't do that, do you? If you do that, then you need to, you know, come back to Sabbath school. <laughs> you're not vegans, you're health reformers. Health reformers minister to more than just the body. I'm not a vegan. I, I'll never call myself a vegan. He who wins souls is wise. If somebody says, are you a vegan? If I say yes, they'll say, oh, yeah, yeah, we know what those are. But if, some, if somebody says, are you a vegan? Oh, no, I'm not a vegan. Really? I mean, you don't eat this, you don't eat... That's a vegan, is it? No, no, no. Well, then what are you? I'm a health reformer. Well, what's that? Well, you know the Bible says in 1 Corinthians 10, 31... And it, bang! Give him the word! I'm a health reformer. So therefore, what we understand is that we don't want to change diet, we don't want to change dress, we don't want to change any of those things and, and just stay stuck in just a reformation, but there's been no revival. Because what will happen as a result of that is that we will find ourselves going through what Ellen White calls dry formality, heavy drudgery, and after a while, you'll turn your back on all of it and say, it's not worth it. 
But when you're revived, brothers and sisters, all of your I got to's turn into I get to. You see, when you're revived, then all of your reformations are birthed as a result of a love for Jesus. Why do you eat this way? Because I love the Lord. Why do you dress this way? Because I love Jesus. Why do you listen to only this kind of music? Because I love God. I don't want to do anything that disrupts. Do you know that Jesus is altogether lovely? I want him to speak to my mind. I can't afford to listen to anything that will disrupt his voice from being heard. All of your I got to's turn into I get to's. Because you revive first, reformation takes place second. You follow that. So therefore, we understand that revival must take place first and then reformation, but these two must blend. Yes? All right, then. So therefore, the question, is there a book that we can study that will help bring about a revival? Is there a book that we can study that can do that? What do you think? What book would that be? What book? Okay, we said the Bible. Now, the Bible has 66 books. Which book? Which book in the Bible? Okay, you got the right book, but which book in the book? Daniel and Revelation. Okay, you say Daniel and Revelation. Any other books? Say again. All right, Job? Joel. 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 Okay, any other book? James. All right, any other book? Okay, let me ask you a question. Let me ask you a question. Why do we need a revival based on our study? Because we're dead. Why are we dead? You know, you know why we're dead? Because life is not in us. Who is our life? I am the way, the truth, and the life. So the problem is, is that Christ is on the outside. That's why he's not going to come in, right? Now watch this. Watch this. Watch this. So therefore, the reason we need a revival is because Christ has somehow got kicked out. Why? Because iniquity was abounding. Now, Christ gets kicked out, but he wants to come back in. Praise God. Now watch this. The question is, we need to have Jesus come back in. Now, I'm going to ask you a question. Would you agree that the way we get Jesus to come back in is to have a proper knowledge of him. Is that right? To behold him. Yes? In other words, we need Christ revealed to us. Yes? What book in the Bible reveals Christ to us? Go to the book of Revelation chapter 1. It's the very first five words in verse 1. Ellen White says in the book Ministry of Healing 143 that the world needs now what it needed 1,900 years ago, a revelation of Christ. And I wonder what the first five words are in Revelation chapter 1, verse 1. The Bible says the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now watch this. You know what the great mistake is that many of us have done? Most of us read Revelation so that we can just simply identify dates, marks, beasts, and charts. I see nothing in that book that tells us the revelation of dates, marks, beasts, and charts. Are you following? In other words, could it be that many of us make the mistake that when we study Revelation, we are more consumed 
with identifying dates, marks, beasts, and charts, than actually seeing the one who the whole book was written about through the experiences of dates, marks, beasts, and charts. Observe. Notice. We are told, let us give more time to the study of the Bible. We do not understand the word as we should. The book of what? Revelation opens with an injunction to us to understand the instruction that it contains. It says, blessed is he that readeth and they that hear the words of this prophecy. God declares and keep those things which are written therein for the time is at hand. Now watch this. When we as a people understand what this book means to us, there will be seen among us a great revival. It says we do not understand what? Fully the lessons that it teaches, notwithstanding the injunction given us to search and study it. This is why you can have so many splinter groups, so many different groups. They're all reading from Revelation, but we all can't see Jesus the same way. What's up with that? Could it be that many of us, brothers and sisters, are not understanding more fully the lessons that it teaches. Because Revelation definitely reveals dates, marks, beasts, and charts, but brothers and sisters, at the end of the day, it reveals Christ in the experiences of these dates, marks, beasts, and charts. And once we lose a sight of Jesus, I can guarantee you the spirit of fanaticism will take possession of minds. When you search the scripture, you must understand that the book Education 125, it tells us that every book and every passage in the Bible reveals the wondrous theme of the redemption plan, the restoration of the image of God in man. You have to ask yourself, where do I see the redemption plan when I read about the seven churches? Where do I see the redemption plan when I read about the mark of the beast? Where is the redemption plan as I read those three angels' messages? Where is the redemption plan when I see the wrath of God that is poured out from heaven? Where do I see the redemption plan in that fourth angel that comes down and lightens the earth with his glory? Where do I see the redemption plan in the early and latter rain subject and the seal of the living God? Where is it? We're in San Diego right now running a Bible and health evangelistic training school. And we made all of our students, we made it clear. We said, you're going to take every doctrine of the Seventh-day Adventist church, and I want you to show me the redemption plan in it. I'm serious. And you don't graduate if you can't show it. Because there's too many people who know how to proof text their way through the Bible, and still people hear them out, and they say, well, thanks for the information, but I'm not inspired, so therefore I'm leaving. Where's the redemption plan when you teach on jewelry and adornment? Where is it? It's there. Where's the redemption plan when you teach the state of the dead? It's there. Where's the redemption plan when you teach the remnant church of Bible prophecy? Where is it? Where's the redemption plan when you teach the spirit of prophecy? Do you get what I'm saying, saints? We have been proof texting for years and it's done a half work, but God wants a whole work. It's there. When you study the book of Revelation, you have to ask yourself, where's the redemption plan as I go through these experiences of the seven churches? Where's the redemption plan through all of these different things? And the redemption plan is broken down in two parts. Redeem means to buy back. Something was taken away, God buys it back. He says, I want it back. Redeem. But then God says, I'm not going to just redeem, I'm going to restore. So therefore, the redemption plan is encased in two points. A redeeming 
of that which was taken away and a restoration back into the original image that it was designed to be. Those are the two points you must bring out when you teach your doctrines. We did a meeting in Connecticut. And when we were there in Connecticut, we, would, we started the meeting. Before we even went into the gospel messages, we started doing the gospel of health. We started showing the people that God has a plan to show them how to overcome high blood pressure, diabetes, and all these wonderful things. But we, again, we, were, we knew we were not making sick sinners, healthy sinners, heaven forbid. So we said, we're going to give them the gospel of health. Do you know that it was night number two? We had over 15 visitors who came out to learn how to overcome high blood pressure. Brothers and sisters, and I found this out just a couple of weeks ago when I was teaching class to the students. You will be amazed at how God will surprise you as a presenter when you're sharing his truth as it is in Jesus that you get edified from the lesson while the people were getting edified. I've always understood the gospel of health. And, you know, once I started to learn it, I understood it, but I wanted to see it demonstrated. So we were in Connecticut. We did high blood pressure. And we started going point by point. What is blood pressure? Why does it get high? Da, 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 da. And we said, who are the people that are affected with it most? So on and so forth. Brothers and sisters, at the end of a high blood pressure presentation, 12 people gave their hearts to Jesus. And committed their lives to him at the end of a high blood pressure presentation. We did arthritis on night number four. When we did arthritis on night number four, and we walked them through what is arthritis? Why do people have? What are the forms of arthritis? Da, 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 da. And you just go down the list. But what we did was we showed the gospel of health. We showed them physical arthritis and spiritual arthritis. At the end of that presentation, nine people not only gave their hearts to Jesus, nine people made a decision to be part of the commandment-keeping family of God. Night number four. Within the first week, we already had 20 people that didn't even hear about the Sabbath yet. And they were all set to start going deeper in studies so that they can be part of this movement. Brothers and sisters, I'm telling you the truth. When you bring out the redemption plan, when you teach sunlight, when you teach the redemption plan, when you teach exercise and water, when you begin to commingle the redemption plan in everything, you know the laws of health is from the Bible. Ellen White didn't make it up. It's in the Bible. So therefore, remember, every book and every passage reveals the wondrous redemption plan. There's a reason Jesus is called the S-U-N of righteousness. So that means that we can learn something about Christ, our righteousness, through the Son. Is that right? So God says just be faithful and keep the two together. You follow that? So therefore, all we're doing is we're consistently seeking to find the redemption plan. So it is when we study the book of Revelation. When we study that book of Revelation, brothers and sisters, we are looking for that redemption plan. Where's Jesus? It's it's supposed to reveal Jesus. Where do I see him, his character, how he's going to redeem and restore me as a result of all this crisis? That is getting ready to come. And I believe that if you and I keep our focus on that, you'll know how to weed out things that are being taught right now that people are trying to make tests for God's people and say that this is what you must understand in order to understand Revelation and the list goes on. Brothers and sisters, you can get beyond that foolishness. You bring it back to the sanctuary. The gospel is revealed through the sanctuary. You see that sanctuary plan even revealed out in the book of Revelation. And lo and behold, you see Jesus like you've never seen him before. And you will see that he is indeed altogether lovely. This needs to be your homework. Let's make out some final points as we prepare to close. 
How do we enter into its experience? I dare not close out this message without showing you how to enter into the experience. Go to Isaiah chapter 6. In Isaiah chapter 6, we find something that is very powerful about how we can enter into this experience of revival. The Bible says in Isaiah the 6th chapter, how do we enter into this experience? How can we get quickened? How can we go from spiritual death to spiritual life? How does this happen? Notice, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw also the Lord sitting upon a throne high and lifted up, and his train filled the temple. Above it stood the seraphims. Each one had six wings. With twain he covered his face. With twain he covered his feet. And with twain he did fly. One cried unto another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the post of the door moved at the voice of him that cried. And the house was filled with smoke. Then said I, Woe is me. For I am undone because I am a man of unclean lips. And I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For mine eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then flew one of the seraphims unto me, having a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with the tongs from off the altar. And he laid it upon my mouth and said, Lo, this hath touched thy lips, and thine iniquity is taken away, and thy sin purged. Also I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? And who will go for us? And then said I, Here am I. Send me. In this beautiful story of Isaiah, we find what takes place to bring about the experience of revival. Now, when we read about Isaiah, we will typically read that Isaiah was truly God's servant. You'll see in Isaiah chapter 1 that God clearly called him. He heard the voice of God, and he responded to that call, yes? And here it is that as God appoints Isaiah and, and calls him to do a work, you read at least 13 times between Isaiah chapter 1 and chapter 5. You see Isaiah woeing the people. 13 times. You see Isaiah, woe to you hypocrites. Woe to those who call light darkness and darkness light. Woe who call evil good and good evil. Woe, woe, woe. He was woeing everybody. But then all of a sudden Isaiah gets this vision and he sees Christ. And as he beholds Jesus, Isaiah says, woe is me. Isaiah had something on him while he was woeing everybody else out that he did not even realize until he saw the vision. Did you catch it in the verse? What was it that Isaiah had on him in the verses? Say again. Say it one more time, a little louder. Filthy robes. Now, where do you see Isaiah having filthy robes in those verses? You see that? In other words, brothers and sisters, be careful because what you learn, you must teach. And when you teach others, you want to make sure that you're able to teach them what's in the verses. You follow that? Look carefully at the verse again. In Isaiah 6, notice what was said. I want you to see what it says right here in verses 6 and 7. You see something about Isaiah, and he had this on him while he was preaching to everybody else. Look at what it says. It says, Then flew one of the seraphims unto me, having a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with the tongs from off the altar, and he laid it upon my mouth and said, Lo, this has touched thy lips. What does it say next? 
and thine iniquity is taken away and thy sin purged. What was on Isaiah while he was preaching to others? Iniquity and sin. While Isaiah was woeing everybody else out, God knew that Isaiah needed to be woed himself. Notice what inspiration says on this. As the prophet Isaiah beheld the glory of the Lord, he was amazed and overwhelmed with a sense of his own what? Weakness and unworthiness. He cried, woe is me. Look at what it says. Isaiah had denounced the sin of others, but now he sees himself exposed to the same condemnation he had pronounced upon them. It says he had been satisfied with a cold, lifeless ceremony in his worship of God. That was the condition of Isaiah. I challenge any of you, read Isaiah chapters 1 through 5. And then look at this quote, cold and lifeless ceremony. That's amazing. That's amazing. Because if we read Isaiah 1 through 5, we see a champion. We see a warrior. We see somebody who is standing for the truth, though the heavens may fall. But here it is, at the very woes he was given to everybody else, he needed to see that he needed to see how woeful he was. It says he had not known this until the vision was given him of the Lord. It is possible that we can preach against sin and error and, and all these other things. And here it is that God is saying, you need the same message. Isaiah needed the same message. And the only way that Isaiah could see it was he had to behold God, interestingly enough, in the sanctuary. As he beheld God in the sanctuary, he was able to see his own weakness his own frailties, and how empty he was without God. Brothers and sisters, this is what we must see if we can have the experience of revival like Isaiah had. You see, notice this. I want, I want to give you some devotional gems as we close. This will take approximately, by the grace of God, 10 minutes, and then we'll go ahead and close it out. Look at this. I want to let this go, and then we'll continue again this afternoon. Notice now. I'm going to go past this. Okay, look at this. No man can of himself understand his errors. You can look at yourself in the mirror all you want. You can't understand your own errors. It says no man can of himself understand his errors. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? Jeremiah 17, 9. It says the lips may express a poverty of soul that the heart does not acknowledge. It's possible that we could say, oh, Lord, I'm, I'm, I'm a humble man. Oh, Lord, I'm so unworthy. But in our hearts, we're saying, no, I'm not. I'm actually very worthy of this. That's how deceitful and wicked our hearts are. Now, it goes on to say, while speaking to God of poverty of spirit, the heart may be swelling with the conceit of its own superior humility and exalted righteousness. That's how wicked our hearts are. That's why you never make a decision based on what you feel. Never. Every decision you make is based on thus saith the Lord. That's the first rule. Now, notice. In one way only can a true knowledge of self be obtained. We must behold Christ. You see how simple a counsel that is? We must behold who? Christ. Now watch this. 
When we behold Christ, remember the promise that 2 Corinthians 3 and verse 18 tells us. By beholding, we become changed. So we're beholding Christ that we may become like Christ. You follow that? Now look at this. It is ignorance of him that makes men so uplifted in their own righteousness. You just found out the problem with Laodicea. The reason individuals suffer with the disease of Laodicea is because of an ignorance of Christ. They don't understand him. But now, this is what you're looking for in your devotional experiences. Watch this. When we contemplate his what? Purity and excellence, we shall see our own weakness and poverty and defects as they really are. So what are you looking for in your devotions? You're looking to see his purity and what else? His excellence. Do you know every morning, every morning when I get up and I have my devotional time with God, what I'm doing is I'm saying, Father, reveal unto me the purity and the excellence of Jesus Christ. Help me to see that. And once you do that, you're going to find that sometimes doing even sometimes these little readings that we do, whether it's from a quarterly or otherwise, it's not going to cut it. You're going to have to really get into books and things that are designed to reveal Christ to us. And then when he is revealed to us, then we will be more inclined to devote ourselves to him. That's why it's called devotion. We have absolutely taken that term and have mutilated it. We call devotion rush time. We're watching our clock. Okay, I got 15 minutes. And we go ahead, we give that, you know, one, two, three prayer. We're reading. Yep, 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 yep. Got it. All right, Lord, be with me today. Bang! And we're out the door. And brothers and sisters, it's almost like it was a waste of time. There's no benefit that came from it. You got to take time with Jesus. You got to get up early enough that you can get the time with him. So that way, when you have your devotion, there's no rush. You can take your time and say, Father, I want to see Jesus this morning. And when I see him, I want to behold his purity. I want to behold his excellence because you know what's going to happen? If you behold his purity and excellence, you're going to see how impure and how not excellent you are. I'm telling you the truth. Every time I have devotion, brothers and sisters, I am reminded of how much I need Jesus. You devote yourself to him. It says... We shall see ourselves lost and hopeless, clad in garments of self-righteousness like every other sinner. We shall see that if we are ever saved, it will not be through our own goodness, but through God's infinite grace. This is what goes about bringing about the true revival experience. You got to behold Jesus, but beholding is not just staring at him. Beholding him is getting into his mind, understanding his character. Seeing the comparison. Remember we talked about comparing ourselves among ourselves? There's no human being on earth worthy of comparison except Jesus. You compare yourself to him. And when you do it, the natural result will come about every time. Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. Let's bring it to a close. Those who experience the sanctification of the Bible will manifest a spirit of humility. Like Moses, they have had a view of the awful majesty of holiness, and they see their own unworthiness in contrast with the purity and exalted perfection of the infinite one. Great Controversy 470. Oh, look at this. Final point. There can be no self-exaltation, no boastful claim to freedom from sin on the part of those who walk in the shadow of Calvary's cross. You know, in the book Faith That I Live By, page 140, it says those who are registered in the books of heaven as holy are not aware of the fact. 
That's sweet. Let me repeat that. That's worth of repeating. Would you say amen? amen? It says in Faith That I Live By, page 140, it says those who are registered in the books of heaven as holy are not aware of that fact. The closer you come to Jesus, brothers and sisters, the last thing in the world you're going to do is brag on yourself. This is why people don't have to hate the theology of victory over sin. Victory over sin is true, but at the same time, those who have victory over sin are not going to go around skipping and dancing and talking about, look at me, look at me, look how perfect I am. Can I show you where Ellen White got that thought from? That those who are registered in the books of heaven as holy are, are not aware of that fact? Can I show you where she got it from in the Bible? Go to Job chapter 1. Job chapter 1. I love to just edify the people. See, I love, to, I love to go back and forth from Bible, spirit of prophecy, Bible, spirit of prophecy. Did you notice that's all this study has been? This whole study has just been Bible, spirit of prophecy, Bible, spirit of prophecy. Notice that very point that Sister White makes that those who are registered in the books of heaven as holy are not aware of that fact. Let me show you how that concept came together. Job chapter 1. In Job chapter 1, look at how God refers to Job. In other words, look at how heaven registers Job. It says in Job chapter 1 and verse 1, there was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job, and that man was what? Perfect and upright, and one that feared God and eschewed evil. So notice that the Bible says that Job was perfect and upright. This is how heaven registered Job's character in the book. Let's find out what Job said about Job. Go to Job 9. God says about Job, perfect and upright. Let's see what Job says about Job. And, this is, and Job is saying this when he was registered in heaven as perfect and upright. The Bible says in Job chapter 9 and verse 20, the Bible says in Job 9 and verse 20, if I justify myself, mine own mouth shall condemn me. If I say I am perfect, it shall prove me perverse. That's powerful. That's sweet. Heaven said perfect upright. Job says unworthy. Unworthy. Jacob is wrestling with the angel. And Jacob is there wrestling with the angel. And you know the story. Jacob said, I can't let you go unless you bless me, right? Well, here it is that Jacob did sin. Jacob did sin, but was the sin confessed by the time he wrestled with the angel? Yes, it was. Yes, it was. That sin was confessed. It was already let go. God cleaned him up. So when Jacob was wrestling with the angel, was he clean? Yes, he was. But then here goes God, and God asks him, what's your name? He says, my name is what? Jacob. Jacob means supplanter, deceiver. So when Jacob was going through his time of trouble, Jacob was clean, but he saw himself unworthy. And the angel had to let him know, your name's not Jacob. Your name has been changed because you have prevailed with God and man. Your name shall now be Israel. There's a time of Jacob's trouble coming. And those who are going to go through the time of Jacob's trouble will be registered in the books of heaven as holy, but they themselves will not know it. They will be so close to Jesus that they have no time to do any type of personal gloating assessment of themselves. 
They will be so consumed being in the presence of Jesus that their only security, their only satisfaction, their only joy and value and worth of living is that Christ may find a place in my heart. Brothers and sisters, a revival comes by beholding Jesus. A revival comes by understanding his purity and his excellence. A revival comes so that when it says in closing on this quote, they feel that it was their sin which caused the agony that broke the heart of the Son of God. And this thought, what thought? What thought? That it was their sin that caused that agony to God. It says this thought will lead them to self-abasement. Those who live nearest to Jesus discern most clearly the frailty and sinfulness of humanity, and their only hope is in the merit of a crucified and risen Savior. Great Controversy 471. My friends, my brothers, my sisters, you don't have to leave here the same way you came in. God says that I can bring about a very real revival in your heart. But the way that it comes is we must accept and recognize that I am dead in trespasses and sins. I am a mess, Lord. And the only way, and if you don't see it, that's all right. Because God shows you how you can see it. When you behold Christ and you study with a deliberate effort to see his purity, his excellence, to see that it was not the spear in his side and it was not the wicked Jews, it was me that killed him. When we begin to understand that, and yet, Zechariah 13 and verse 6, Jesus says, the question was asked, what are those wounds in your hands? And Jesus says, these wounds, these are they which I received at the house of my friends. I thought about that. He still called me a friend. Brothers and sisters, when you visit a friend's house and when your friend hurts you, and let's say your friend punched you in your face or something like that, you don't go to somebody when they say, what's that wound on your face? And you say, I got that from my friend. You know what you say? You say, I got that, I got this bruise from that loser. I got this bruise from that wicked person. You know, we, we, we speak our minds, don't we? Those Jews hated Jesus so much that when it came to the tomb, they didn't even want to call his name. So they go to Pilate and they say, that man said. They hated his name because they knew what his name meant. Jesus, who is just as human as you and I, Jesus was asked the question, what are these wounds in your hands? And Jesus didn't say, oh, it was done to me by those losers. Jesus didn't say, oh, it was done to me by those wicked people. Jesus said, these wounds are the wounds that I received while I was in the house of my friends. He says, I'm still willing to be your friend. You killed me. You brutally murdered me. And it's not just what happened on the cross, because Hebrews 6.6 6 says that every time we sin, we crucified Christ afresh. And yet, he would still be willing to say, I will still receive you as a friend if you would just let me in. There's no way, I'm sorry, there's no way that you can behold a love like that at a long period of time and the heart not be softened.
And then you start to say, Lord, you would do this for me? Have mercy on me, a sinner. What can we brag about ourselves when we stand before a character like that? This is what Jesus is offering to you and I today. He says, please, give me your filthy robe. That robe would never allow you to be accepted in the wedding. He says, please, let me cover you with my robe. Accept it today. He says, I'm still willing to offer it to you. But you got to relinquish all of your self-righteousness and your self-exaltation and your self-uplifting. We have to lay it all down and recognize, Lord, there is nothing about me that commends me to God. But Jesus, you're altogether lovely. And I crown you Lord of my life. And so today, if you realize, Lord, I'm struggling. I'm struggling seeing myself as I should. I don't see myself as I really am. But I plead with you. Help me to see myself for who I really am by seeing you for who you really are. So that by your grace and by your power, I can be revived from this dead state that I'm in. And that I can be quickened and renewed with life. If that's your desire this day, and you're saying, Lord, I don't see myself as I truly should. Lord, I need your grace and your power to help me get a real clear vision so that I can behold Jesus. I'll see his purity. I'll see his excellence. I will see that it was my sins that killed him. And yet, you're still willing to love me and to live your life within me so that I don't have to go back and do those things again. If that's truly your sincere desire, brothers and sisters, and your commitment to say, Lord, I see myself a little bit better, but I want to see it more clearly, and I commit that I'm going to be more focused on beholding you so that I can see you for who you are and see me for who I am, that I may experience a true revival. Would you stand to your feet? You'll find that as Jesus did with Isaiah, he'll do it with you and I. Because even in the most holy place, we are told in Great Controversy 489 that it is the light of the cross that is reflected there. We'll still see him there. And as we behold that lovely image, by beholding, may we all become changed. As much as you're able to, let us kneel together as we seal our decisions. Our Father in heaven, we thank you so much that you have helped us on a more practical level to understand what can bring about a true revival. We thank you, Lord, that you have spoken to our hearts. You've helped us to see our true state. We are wretched, we are miserable, we are poor, we are blind, and we are naked. And our only hope is in the merits of a crucified and risen Savior who lives in the most holy place of the heavenly sanctuary, not only to forgive our sins and not even just to cover them, but he wants to live out his life within us so he can give us complete victory over sin. 
so that he can finally blot them out and cleanse the sanctuary. This is the great work of heaven. May this be the work that we will let you do within our hearts, for it is God who works in us both to will and to do according to his good pleasure. Let thy will be done, O God. Help us to behold Jesus, to see his purity, his excellence, to see that it was our sins that killed him. And yet you were still willing to love us and to forgive us. Lord, may our hearts be softened. And may you take away the stony heart and give us hearts of flesh. We praise you and thank you that though these things may seem impossible with man, we're grateful that all things are possible with God. Let thy will be done, we pray, for we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.